Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking today with Emily Oakley, who with her partner, Michael Appel, own and operate Three Springs Farm, a diversified vegetable farm started in 2003 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Emily is interested in agrobiodiversity and the role of women in farming. Mike is passionate about the social issues surrounding food systems. They use time in the winter to participate in farmer-to-farmer exchanges with other growers around the world and to work on local and national agricultural issues. Emily serves as an organic producer representative to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Organic Standards Board. I can't wait to dig into some of Emily's experiences with her, so let's get started. Welcome, Emily, and good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's really, really pretty exciting. I've been on your website um, looking through the wealth of information and history there. And I have to say, one of the things I really love about your vision statement, you say, Three Springs Farm strives to be as small as possible. <laughs> and, and then you qualify, you qualify it with a bit more. But, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's... I'd like to know more about, and I'd like to have you share more about your journey um, because you've been all over the country. Um, You've been involved in a number of organizations and associations even prior to starting the farm. And um, I think it's a really interesting uh, road that you've walked to get there. um, So maybe you could share some of that with us. Sure. Well, um, just to briefly address that that main point about being as small as possible while still trying to make a simple living. Um, you know, we, we worked and interned and visited all different sizes of farms before starting our own, both in university and then active internships where we were trying to, you know, put what we'd read in books into practice. And, you know, I think in the U.S. in particular, there's a really strong drive regardless of whether you're conventional or organic or sustainably minded to grow your business. It's, it's a very big part of our American culture, I believe. And even within farming and even within organic farming, that mindset trickles down. So 
once a farm becomes successful and becomes established and has a customer base and, you know, is, is not in the red and is actually profitable, there's a lot of pressure, I think, consistently to just continue to grow and expand your operation. And that can work wonderfully for many, many people. But I also think that, you know, one approach rather than having all the farms start to get really big or get bigger is to have more smaller farms dotted throughout the landscape, you know, both in the United States and around the world. And I think that if you can demonstrate the profitability of a smaller operation and that more local community connection, maybe it will inspire other farms to try to maybe stay smaller rather than feel that pressure and feel the need to, to move towards the larger operation. And by larger, I mean, we are only farming three acres of annual vegetables and we have about an acre in some perennials. And I mean, that's a, that's a very small farm. In fact, here in Oklahoma, they call us more of a garden than a farm, despite the fact, you know, that we make our full-time living doing this. Um, But I think that if you can, you know, move people to see that sort of smaller scale operation as viable, I think it will inspire more young farmers, not only to get into farming, but then to stay in it and to not necessarily expand uh, too much or too far. For us, you know, we wanted to remain a two-person operation. That was a big part of our initial philosophical approach. And, you know, that comes from having (laughs) interned on farms where we've worked with fellow interns who kind of learn on that farm that farming's not necessarily what they want to do. Um, and also it's, it's a big commitment to have interns and to do it well and to do a good job of educating them. And we realized, you know what, we don't necessarily want to manage a bunch of people and we enjoy working together. Also, you know, when you start to get bigger, you start kind of farming out, no pun intended, some of the tasks and responsibilities because you just become big enough that two people can no longer do all of the work. And we really like having our hands in the dirt. We really like being involved in all aspects from the office work to the field preparation to planting, harvesting, marketing. And we didn't really want to lose sight of that or lose touch with all the different pieces that bring the magic of farming together. So I could I could go off more on, you know, more of our background if you'd like, but that's to kind of more sort of briefly-ish address the issue of why we we choose to stay smaller. You've touched on some really important points just in this one topic. Um, I think I think one of them is is recognizing the ability to maintain a sort of a craftsman level of control over quality by staying small mm. and you be, being able to be intimate with every aspect and every element of your operation is, is something that gets lost as scale goes up. You've also identified not just something touching on access for beginning farmers, but it, it Well, when when we talk about access, we talk about access to funding, we talk about access to land, we talk about access to technology. And I don't mean by technology necessarily high tech, um, but technology in the sense of how to do stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but there's also this sense of I don't have to be big to be legitimately engaged. Mm. You know, I don't have to be big to necessarily, I don't necessarily have to be big to succeed. And that in itself also, I think, touches on something that I'm seeing as I start trying to work more and more in the space of innovation um, with sectors and colleagues and collaborators and partners who come from more of a, a technological, you know, IT or, or, you know, more of a hardware end or software end of innovation and their orientation to startups, which presumes this growth to the point where something is ready to sell and that that then qualifies success. And I'm in these conversations with them. It's like, wait a minute, you know, we, we actually need a different paradigm here because people who are moving into things like regenerative agriculture, who are moving into things like ecological restoration, and even some of the people moving into ecological design, they don't plan on leaving. <laughs> right? right. This, isn't, this isn't their fantasy to get big and get out. Right. They, they want to develop something that is that is satisfying for them that they can stay in. Exactly. And and so we need, you know, we need different motivations in there. And we don't want to be tying ourselves into this overarching economic assumption which is killing the planet. Right. Which is all about growth, you know, perpetual fantasy growth within a limited system exactly so, i mean all that just from the fact that you guys want to stay small i mean that's <laughs> that's pretty cool in terms of being able to unpack well and i think you know you touched on a big motivation that brought us into agriculture you know in high school i was and even before that very involved in environmental activism issues and growing up in oklahoma which is an agricultural state um, both row crops and quite a bit of grazing and pasture land. You know, I just sort of assumed that agriculture was always at odds with the environment and that it was the problem. And in many cases, it certainly is. But I also came to be exposed to sustainable agricultural principles and regenerative agricultural principles and realized well, there's another way. And it doesn't have to be a constant conflict with the environment. And you know, somehow that realization and then in university studying internationally and getting the opportunity to visit smaller scale subsistence farmers in many different places, intern with them, learn from them, you know, kind of brought me back full circle to this notion that not only can agriculture truly be regenerative and be a force for positive change, um, while we were studying it, we were originally thinking that we would um, work with farmers, but we realized, you know, hey, what the world needs is probably more people in the United States to become small-scale farmers themselves, you know, and use that not only to produce food, but it actually becomes this launching point when you sell directly to your consumers to try to bring the conversation full circle because, you know, food is is a very easy way to bridge other topics. Everybody eats, most people enjoy eating, and when they start sort of relishing local food and the flavors that come with the seasons and you know varieties that they can get from a farmer's market or a CSA that they can't get 
necessarily at a grocery store, they start, you know, seeing it as a positive force and, and they can do something really proactive, something that benefits the environment, that benefits their local community, that has an economic justice component of it as well, that feels good on so many different levels. But it can also then help you question, well, okay, if I'm, if I'm thinking about where my food comes from, you know, what about my t-shirt? <laughs> where, was, where was the cotton grown? And, you know, how is it made into this fabric and who sewed it? And, you know, what are the implications of that? And I mean, it's true that that's a bit more of a stretch. You know, food is, is, a, is a lot more positive. Um, and, you know, it, it, it definitely takes a lot of conscious consideration to then explore other aspects of your life. But if you can do it and, you know, if you can sort of take those small steps, I think it helps all of us think more holistically about the impacts of all of our choices and in a way that's empowering, you know, not just in a way that feels um, either sad or overwhelming, but that actually feels like our choices can be an action for positive and effective change. I think that that's a really good point. And um being able to, I'm looking at the, actually the image on your website there of, of you guys holding your daughter and standing behind this gorgeous pile of asparagus. <laughs> uh, and it, it's, you know, it's putting me, um, you know, my imagination into, into being at the farm stand. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this is an opening for a conversation and that that conversation is not really possible in a large supermarket, for instance. So what happens when we are face to face with a producer, uh, you know, or looking across and discussing a pile of asparagus with a potential consumer um, and these conversations that are enabled through that process, through that kind of human to human interaction. Um, and that it's in a little window of possibility because that's what you're doing when you're buying something you're going to take home and cook, right? You're in that moment of possibility. You haven't cooked it yet. You're looking at it. You're attracted to it. Maybe you're smelling it. You're, you're thinking about all the different things maybe you could take, home, take that home and do with it. And then you're having that discussion about how it was grown, how to, how to like pick a good one from a bad one, um, other possibilities of how to eat it. So you're in this really beautiful opening of, of, of a creative space, uh, it, it's just lovely. It, it's an absolutely wonderful example of the kind of moments that we have together, I think, where we can, we can open up and explore possibilities. So obviously, in that conversation, there's an opportunity to talk about some of the interns and, and what's important to them, or where does the cotton in your t-shirt come from and go to when you're finished with it? Um, you know, why the certain uh, process that you have used to produce a particular vegetable is superior. Yeah. Um, Etc. 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 It's all about stories in some ways. Well, it's true, and I think that you know the beauty of the relationship between the farmer and the consumer is that you know farmers can grow all the food they want, but if they don't have people to eat it, <laughs> the circle remains uncompleted. And uh, same with consumers; they may have a great demand for local food, but if there aren't farmers there to grow it then there's a missed opportunity. So it's, it's really this connection 
that is completed by the relationship between farms and consumers creating this community together. And, you know, we've had people ask us some really easy questions to answer and ask us some really difficult questions to answer. And we've had a vegan ask us if we use fish emulsion as a fertilizer and decide not to buy from us because, you know, we do. And, and that might seem like sort of, you know, one end of the spectrum of concern, but I really appreciate the fact that that conversation can take place. And I think, you know, what we've noticed over time in the 14 years that we've been selling food that we've been growing is a real change and a real shift in the consumer's one understanding of what we mean when we say we're growing organic food and two, a real demand and interest for that. You know, when we first started, we, we actually got not a few questions about what does that organic actually mean, you know, and why is this important and why should I care? And at this point, you know, when we say we're certified organic, we get probably more expectation that the consumer understands what that means um, than maybe even sometimes they do because, you know, there's a lot behind what certified organic can and should and does mean. Um, this is, you know, perhaps a little bit of an aside, but, you know, for us, when we think about what it means to be certified organic, it's about so much more than what we don't do or can't do. You know, it's about so much more than the fact that it's non-GMO and we're not using synthetic fertilizers and pesticides, which is a really sort of simplistic way of perceiving it. It's about everything that we do do, which is where the regeneration comes in. It's about not only, you know, fostering, but actually planning for and planting for wildlife habitat, uh, beneficial insect habitat, and, you know, this broader ecosystem that we live in. We're very close to a creek. In fact, our, our front yard looks out and walks down to this creek, which is one of the most pristine and unpolluted in our state. So our management decisions are not just guided by what we do on the three acres that we're tilling, but you know, thinking in terms of this broader watershed that we exist in. Um, you know, well, although we have a deer fence <laughs> to keep out the deer from our actual plot of vegetables and fruits that we're growing, just outside of that fence is an area that we've left and planted native trees back into to try to regenerate a forest ecosystem and to allow for and foster deer and bobcats and hopefully mountain lions. We think we've, we think we've had one. Um, That's exciting. I, it is exciting. I, I want a sign that says, you know, mountain lions and bears welcome here, <laughs> which people think sounds crazy, but I mean it in that, you know, their presence signals something so critical in the broader ecosystem and, um, indicates to some extent, you know, an, an ability to survive in this, you know, man-made and altered landscape. Because even though our farm is in the midst of, you know, pretty rural area that still has quite a few forests and open woodlands, um, you know, it's still a very altered system from its original natural state. So, you know, seeing those those larger carnivores at the top of the food chain is for us a sign of success. So, you know, we want to farm with a mentality that that honors that and that encourages it and 
you know, do I, do I really want them to make a den in our three acres? No, but they're not going to. But if we, you know, leave the rest of the 18 acres that we own um, in habitat, it just, it creates this greater symbiosis uh, than would be possible if we were thinking purely in terms of production, because there's certainly more land on our farm that we could cultivate and that we could grow on, but we make a very intentional choice not to do that. I mean, in some respects, be honest, it's a little bit of, you know, assuaging our guilt for having taken up land from them in the first place um, from the native wildlife to grow this food. Um, so I think, you know, what the beauty of a smaller operation is that it might be a little bit easier to think about that bigger picture and to fit within it. Not that larger farms can't do that too, but, um, you know, scale definitely, as you mentioned earlier, makes it um, a little more challenging to consider the larger you get some of these bigger pictures. And I think, you know, bring it back full circle to the community connection. I think a big part of what consumers and customers want when they buy from us at the market is not just the fact that our food doesn't have, you know, captan or other, you know, non-desirable, non-organic pesticides, fertilizers, et cetera. I think it's that, you know, they also believe in that and the broader reasons that brought us to farming and that keep us farming. So it's, it's a real win-win for everyone in terms of food that we believe in, but also a broader lifestyle and philosophical choice that goes with it. Yeah. So when they're buying and consuming that salad that you grew, they're consuming the tracks of the bobcat that walked through. I love in, that. In some sense, right? I, I hope so. <laughs> I hope they, that's why they, they're buying well, it from us. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's, that's the beauty of, of being able to have a scale where you can have these kinds of conversations as a normal aspect of your action, of your activities. Um, you know, rather than re regretting the fact that you don't have time for them, for instance. We're going to take a break now, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. We're chatting with Emily Oakley of Three Spring Farms, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Talk to me a bit about the role of women in farming and why you feel this is something that's important. Yeah, I feel extremely passionately about this issue. I mean, I feel extremely passionately about the issues that women face across the world, regardless of agriculture. Um, but I also feel their role in farming is sort of indicative of our broader global societal 
view of gender and gender roles because women have been farming forever. In fact, many argue that they were the first farmers, in fact, yet their roles in agriculture are often either overlooked or marginalized or considered an extension of their domestic duties rather than an active role in farming. In fact, you know, if you ask people to imagine a farmer, uh, they usually think of a man in overalls with a straw hat and a pipe sticking out of his mouth. Um, Maybe that's a little bit too romanticized, but I, I definitely think they tend to think of men. Whereas, you know, women have been farming on their own and as part of families uh, forever. So, you know, part of my desire is to see that recognition brought to light, not just, not just sort of for the sake of it, but because, you know, then policies are better informed when they recognize the whole farming community picture, when they recognize the inclusion of women. Um, and decisions can be made in a way that are more effective, in fact, because if you leave out half the people who are doing the activity, when you're planning for um, outreach or extension or any other project, it's, it's going to only be half as effective as it could be. So, you know, that's sort of the philosophical drive that brought me to it. And then the practical side is that, you know, having visited farmers around the globe and in the U.S., women play an essential, if not primary role in producing food. And that is an incredibly rich trove of knowledge that we as a global community have to tap into as long as we recognize it and seek that out. Uh, Women also tend to grow varieties of crops that the family wants to eat and you know, that isn't, that's particularly true, um, you know, in subsistence-based farming situations or smaller scale operations, you know, even within the U.S., simply because if they are the ones predominantly doing the cooking, um, particularly in highly gendered, div- divided um, communities or situations, you know, they want crops that taste good. They want crops that have cultural, religious, historical significance that bring the community and the big picture together on the plate. And within the United States, you know, I think the irony is that many of the young people who are getting into farming as first generation, first career farmers are in fact women. Um, And while they may be part of a team that includes a male partner as well, there are actually a large number of women who are starting operations on their own and who are finding success in doing that. So I think, you know, this is sort of what brings me to care about that issue. It's, it's almost like an issue of rights and equality, just shining a light where there has been a shadow and, you know, finding out what richness can unfold from that. And how do you see that in terms of your own education work and, and your outreach? Because I know you're involved in, in uh, outreaching through more than what goes onto the plate. Yeah, I think that, you know, within our outreach, it's kind of taking, it takes like various forms. At the most local level, it, it includes tours on the farm. Um, and then in that case, it's, it's a very easy and direct way to help either school groups or consumers or, um, you know, students in college kind of see that, that their view of what agriculture is might be um, not getting the whole picture and realizing that 
you know, you, you can be successful on a smaller scale operation and that women are a big part of that picture, if not sometimes the driving force of that. And then more nationally, I think the outreach involves connecting with and encouraging other, you know, smaller scale and often younger organic farmers to see success and to not feel isolated and to realize they're part of a bigger community and keep that motivating factor when, when times get tough. And internationally, when we have been able to be fortunate enough to engage in farmer to farmer exchanges, um, it has always been driven by the desire to make sure that women are, if not the focus, equally included in that outreach and exchange. So kind of on that international basis, we've, we've done a number of exchanges that have been through the USAID, the Agency for International Development's Farmer to Farmer program, which is like the surprise small program that exists within this otherwise huge behemoth of an institution that was created to bring US farmers and farmers in the global south together to talk about issues of agriculture and to address maybe potential areas of concern or areas where there's a de desire for more information. So those that we've done have been based around organic agriculture and very often with women just by default because they're the ones engaging in uh, that agriculture. Then we've also done some exchanges on our own and uh, we are actually extremely excited because we will be going um, in about a month to Ethiopia to follow up on an exchange that we did in Peru. <laughs> and this is a bit of a long story, but I'll try to make it short. Um, no, 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 just, just lay it out. I was gonna ask you for some <laughs> stories next anyway. Well, okay, so um, there's a Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., the Museum of the American Indian. And we happened to be in Washington, D.C. for a friend's wedding, went to the museum. And in the lower level, they had a rotating gallery of art and they had photographs featuring this exchange that took place between an Ethiopian farmer and some farmers in Peru. And Mike and I, while we were studying, you know, international agricultural development, often felt probably within like the first year of studying this, so at least 20 years now, um, that what happens is these outside experts, in quotes, you know, come into a community, they're deemed to have a great deal of knowledge, and they're there to impart it and kind of move on. And they do quite a bit of this exchanging of information and presenting of information. But, you know, we almost never saw the farmers themselves sort of deemed experts and, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. brought to do the travel, right? Um, yeah, exactly. And we wondered, you know, when we were in Nepal and we were visiting this incredible permaculture farm that was the epitome of regenerative agriculture that served as a demonstration and just simply by its success in its actions was garnering support within the community because people could see the yield increase, could see the stopping of erosion through these swales and contours and plantings along the contour and the forest that was emerging on this farm and would adopt those principles themselves, you know, we thought, why, why aren't these experts who have created this incredible system here, you know, being 
allowed to and sought out and invited to speak with farmers and maybe, you know, Nigeria or someplace else that might have a similar question of, well, how do we address a slope and how do we, you know, productively deal with the fact that we're not farming on flat land and, you know, still get good yields and not lose too much space to production while we're also aiming for conservation. And, you know, the answer never really came to us. Like we never could figure out why that didn't happen. I mean, there are definite logistics in terms of food, culture, language, climate. Um, but I also think it's really just a question of seeing and valuing farmers as experts. So back to the, this museum where we saw this exhibit, you know, our hearts were just racing with excitement to see this. It was the first example we'd seen of a South-South farmer-to-farmer exchange. So uh, we researched it more and we eventually were able to visit this potato park in Peru in the Sacred Valley that farmers had created um, with the assistance of a local NGO to preserve hundreds and hundreds of varieties of potatoes in situ, like in place, by growing mm -hmm. them out and by keeping those varieties literally alive both by cultivating them, but also then by using them and keeping the cultural significance and memory around each variety intact with it. So we went there to meet with the farmers in Peru who had hosted the Ethiopian farmer and researcher who had come to visit them, who wanted to create a similar park, like a preservation park for a crop that they are growing called inset. And it's a crop that is incredibly culturally significant. It's fodder, it's a building material, it's food. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a form of banana, isn't it? But they use Yeah, it's root. called the false banana. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They use the starchy so, rootstock. Yes, exactly. So we were able to meet with the farmers in Peru who hosted the Ethiopian farmers. And also uh, there was one of the Peruvian farmers who traveled to Ethiopia to help them try to realize this goal and this dream of creating an inset park. Well, long story short, <laughs> we are actually now getting to go visit the farmers in Ethiopia who went to Peru and the community that hosted the, the Peruvian farmer and the inset park that they created. And for us, this is literally like 20 years of a dream come true to get to see the actualization of a South-South farmer-to-farmer exchange. And we hope that when we go there and, you know, are able to ask questions, you know, how did this help the community besides just the individuals that got to go? What are the broader effects of this? And I mean, also just the frank question, which we've been asked before, hey, you know, it's expensive to send someone internationally. Would it be better to just, you know, put $10,000 towards clean water in a community or, you know, creating an agricultural project rather than investing that money in the travel for a couple of individuals? Um, and asking that question, you know, what, what would be the benefit? What is the benefit? And would you, you know, can you articulate for us some of what has come of that? We've actually had two of the farmers that we've, done exchanges with, one in Nigeria and one in Haiti, come visit us for a reciprocal exchange. And we've asked them that same question, you know, wouldn't it, some people say, wouldn't it just be better to make a donation to some sort of project going on directly in the community? And they've both said, oh my gosh, no. I mean, granted, they're the ones who are getting to do the exchange, 
but they say, you know, there is nothing like that direct face-to-face -face experience and interaction, the cultural cross-communication and exchange that takes place. And, you know, for us, these sorts of exchanges are basically like professional development for farmers, right? Because, you know, it's, it takes going to other farms, seeing what people are doing, questioning them, learning from them, sharing your own perspective, learning from mistakes, learning from successes in that place that makes the, the, the exchange like truly viable and gives it something that, you know, is a tangible learning experience that you can then take back. Well, I think it also, it also begs the question in something which isn't really vital in, in the sense of vitality, right? A really vital element of regenerative practice. Do we want to be confining ourselves to a scarcity mindset mm. where we're playing off a water pump against a visit? Right. <laughs> you know, why, why aren't we being creative and saying, okay, how do we do both? Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Exactly. As like, like, what is it about being in Ethiopia that means a, a community is, has to be forced to make that decision between one right. or the other? You know, that's just absurd. Um, and, and then the other element, of course, is like, you know, a human to human, culture to culture exchange has so many nuanced you know, subtle elements to it that you would never be able to sit down and, and basically make a list and say, well, we want to get all this to happen because right. you don't even know all the questions you want to ask until you're in the situation. Exactly, exactly. You know, one of the exchanges that we did in Northern Nigeria um, with small scale farmers who were growing also, you know, some tomatoes and peppers for a cash crop market that had to sell everything that they grew to a middleman. Um, who then, of course, takes the greatest percentage of the profit. And that's uh -huh. because the smaller scale operators you know, do not own vehicles. The roads are very difficult to travel on. You know, they, they don't have the individual resources to then market their goods directly to consumers. And a lot of those products were shipped to southern Nigeria. You know, it's, it's, it's drier in northern Nigeria. Therefore, it's a little bit easier to grow some of those crops. But when we just did a presentation, kind of showing some slides of our farm and then of our farmer's market and said, you know, we sell everything we grow directly to our consumers. And the reason for that is so we can get the retail price. There was a room of like 150 farmers. And, you know, I don't know exactly what the translator said. Hopefully it was what we said, but the room the minute that got translated, just erupted in the most spontaneous applause and people standing up and just cheering at the concept of being able to sell uh, directly to consumers and to get more of that retail price. And it's, you know, it's not that people don't there, of course, haven't thought of that before, but it's so empowering to see that, hey, you know, maybe it's being done someplace. Maybe there's something that we can do that might give us more power over our situation. Um, yes. And it's just an exchange of ideas. Yeah, exactly. And how could you, how could you list that in a grant application? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess in conclusion of that point, you know, just because something is hard, or challenging doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done and doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. And maybe because it's so hard, it's actually that much more valuable. So. And that much more important to do it. Exactly. Yeah.
Um, so this is a nice little segue, I think, from working with farmers in other parts of the world, particularly in the in kind of in the South, which I think of is is this combination of of a, an area of a natural genetic abundance mm. and you know a, a tragic um, tragic reduction of possibility, you know, under the heels of industrial and colonial systems, mm-hmm. um, but. Let's take a look a little bit at this this idea of agrobiodiversity, which is another one of the areas of, of your particular focus and interest. And um, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of that diversity that you experienced, for instance, in the potato in the potato park, you know, um, or I don't know how many varieties of insect there are. I, I, when I was in college, I did a lot of work on Peruvian potato varieties, so I have some sense of that, but. Um, I know there's more than one variety of insect, but but that's all I know about that. But a lot of the the um, the southern production systems are polycultural, mm-hmm. particularly on a, on a smaller scale production, and would be more of a horticulture rather than agricultural production. But I imagine that with your interest in that, you've also uh, develop your own iteration of it, your own your own version of that there in, in Oklahoma. So I'd, I'd love to hear some more about that. Well, you know, <laughs> it's interesting you tie it back to Oklahoma. So um, when I was in graduate school, I, I um, actually did my research in Bangladesh in communities that were still growing traditional rice varieties, um, but also growing the improved varieties. Um, not GMO, but yeah. Okay. I was going to say in quotation marks. Or... Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, the farmers were very frank. The yield was certainly going to be higher with the improved varieties, but they were also dependent on fertilizers and pesticides and the purchasing of the hybrid seed each year, which is, you know, a huge input cost for families that um, have very little extra income. But as much as they loved the traditional varieties, as access to land decreased and the number of mouths to feed increased, the need to grow these improved varieties felt sort of almost overwhelming. And people would continue to grow their traditional land race varieties on smaller parcels um, because they had qualities that the improved varieties couldn't come near to matching. Like, um, they might be used for a particular ceremony at a particular time of year. They might be used for popping. There were some that could literally grow a centimeter a day with floodwaters. So maybe there was a farmer who had more marginal land and continued to grow those old-time land race varieties out of necessity. But there were also plenty of people who lamented the fact that they kind of could no longer grow them. And it's It's interesting because on our own farm, we started out growing a great deal of heirloom varieties of vegetables and over time found ourselves moving towards hybrid varieties of vegetables because they were simply better adapted to our crazy growing conditions that we have here of a very short, well, a long spring, but um, short in the sense that it gets hotter here sooner than it does in many other parts of the country. And it lasts a lot longer and it's a lot more intense. It's, it's, um, it actually makes it easier to do some farmer to farmer exchanges because we have somewhat 
similar growing conditions in that respect in our summertime. Um, but we found ourselves like people who who come to agriculture out of this passion for agrobiodiversity, growing an increasing number of hybrids and you know, finding ourselves kind of under the same conditions in the sense of you know, needing a hybrid because it just so greatly outperformed um, an heirloom variety as some of the farmers that we'd met with. And so, you know, there's not an easy answer or even like a nice way to package this up. It's simply kind of what we faced. That doesn't mean we still don't grow heirlooms because we do and we trial um, open pollinated and heirloom varieties every year. But we find ourselves in a place that doesn't have a long history of vegetable growing. And, you know, many of the old time vegetable varieties have been lost for so long now that, you know, anybody who had a wonderfully adapted local cabbage has long since stopped growing that, or, you know, that's several generations back. So we don't have this treasure trove of locally adapted varieties that, you know, we can immediately start working with. And in fact, you know, it's the opposite. It's as if we have to start from scratch in some respects to try to get locally adapted varieties and select them again for our conditions. So it's sort of the like other end of the spectrum of what happens once you've lost a local tradition in agriculture and what the work you have to do to then try to reinvigorate that and to make that um, a valid way of making a living. So unfortunately, I don't have this beautiful story <laughs> of caring about agrobiodiversity so passionately and then be able, being able to you know, enact that on my, on my own farm. Um, but are you in the process? I mean, do, do you set aside, for instance, really top performers to, to save those seeds and, and start reselection? Is that something you are, have a space to do? You know, it's, it's actually, it's something that we do do with garlic. Um, uh -huh. And garlic has not been necessarily the most profitable crop, but it's one that we feel has potential and one that we have a lot of like emotional attachment to. And um, it's been an incredibly challenging process. And with climate change, yeah. part of the problem is that, you know, what, what conditions you experience one fall, winter, and spring are dramatically different the next year. And, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it, then it makes think it people realize that, you know, that climate change is about basically kicking the pendulum into a state of chaos. Yes. You know, exactly. it's not, it's not sort of like, well, we can predict, you know, that now we're going to be so much warmer than before, or so much wetter or drier than before. It's like, who knows what next year is going to bring. Exactly. And it's very hard to adapt varieties to those conditions. In fact, that is actually what spurred the inset visit. The fact that, you know, what varieties that were performing well under certain conditions for generations were no longer performing well because of climate change, um, which of course the farmers in the Sacred Valley in Peru were also experiencing. I think this is something that connects farmers regardless of where they are on the planet, what they're growing, their scale. It doesn't matter. We're all addressing and facing the same challenge of, of climate change. So, so yes, um, we, are, we are making some small steps in that direction, but it's, 
it's actually tremendously frustrating and challenging. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, that actually underscores the, the importance of the agrobiodiversity. Exactly. Even though it frustrates attempts to, um, to really play with it, I suppose. Um, it's just so, it, it puts me in mind of a traditional um, milpa system, for instance, like mm -hmm. would be practiced by the Mayan people in Mexico where you've got such a variety of, of, of not just crop types, but varieties within those types. Mm -hmm. And you're saving the seed from everything so that in any given year, you will get a decent enough harvest to feed everybody. Although it may be different crops which perform for you that particular season. Exactly, exactly. And that wouldn't be possible if we weren't saving all of the different types. Exactly. And, you know, small-scale diverse organic vegetable farms in the U.S. are really based on that same principle because we may grow 30 different crops and, you know, 150 different varieties, but what will do well one year may not do well the next. And it's that diversity that hedges our bets and allows us to remain successful year after year. Yeah, and I think, you know, another term I think that maybe a lot of listeners might not be clear on is when you talk about hybrid. We're not mm -hmm. talking about GMO. We're talking about, you know, kind of a standard, um, you know, pollen on, on the pistol of, of a different plant and that that first generation of, of crossing from two diverse lines creates something called hybrid vigor where those plants are stronger than either one of the parents but that it's not a stable uh, mixing genetic mix so that essentially if you want the same thing next year, you've got to make the same cross again to produce the seeds. Exactly. And, um, you know, I think people are now think that they know enough about what's going on, tend to get frightened by things like, oh, it's a hybrid. Yes. Right? <laughs> We've met that too. Um, yes, it, it is. It is a, um, I mean, it is definitely, you know, human intervention, but it's, it's not so unlike the human intervention that takes place in simply selecting open pollinated varieties from one year to the next. Um, it is a far cry from mixing genes of other species or, you know, other manipulations that take place in genetic engineering. And, and when we also talk about open pollinated, that to a huge extent, those are actually the progeny of previous first-generation hybrids, which have been stabilized over several generations of, of growing the seed out again. Um, the problem with that stability is that now the climate is no longer stable. Right. Exactly. Well, and, you know, this is where farmers interacting with one another can come into play. We actually purchased and well we didn't even purchase the farmer gave it to us um, a farmer in Arkansas who's about two hours from us but in a similar you know agro ecosystem climate um, gave us some garlic seed that he got from a farmer who got it from another farmer in the Appalachian Mountains you know with a kind of similar climate as ours 
And we're going to try this one this year. And he's had a lot of success with it for many years now. And so it's that farmer to farmer exchange that's allowing us to try this new variety. I mean, it's not new. It's an heirloom garlic that's been grown for many years. But for us, it's new to see how it you know, can handle our crazy conditions. And um, yeah, it just brings all of those pieces together full circle. It's great territory for geeks. <laughs> That's right. Isn't That's it? Right. <laughs> I mean, you kind of, you, you really need to be able to kind of nerd along with, with this kind of stuff to, to, to get the most intellectual stimulation from it as well. <laughs> yeah, I hope some people aren't listening to this and already asleep. Um, <laughs> yes, this is, that's exactly right. There's, there's a lot of agricultural geeking out that comes with all of this stuff. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the most productive forms of geeking I'm, I'm aware of anyway. <laughs> Let's just be, before we go, because we are coming up on our, on our hour, um, I just want to touch a little bit on this. Uh, you, you, know, you mentioned that you've been involved with the National Organic Standards and the board. Um, and of course, that's been in the news recently because of the, what many people see as the weakening of, of the organic certification. And, and now the Rodale um, itself, Rodale Institute has, has issued a new standard, uh, a new branding for regenerative uh, regeneratively produced um, produce, but one of the one of the one of the points that you had mentioned just as we were starting was um, enabling younger farmers to kind of get a leg up on the system and, and get started through helping them to to negotiate or navigate the the um, the certification process. Maybe you could talk a little bit about why you feel that's important and what you see happening that's positive and maybe what needs to happen next. Definitely. I think that, you know, it was small scale farmers who created the organic movement and the label and educated consumers and those you know, direct conversations at farmers markets and otherwise to, you know, create what is now a really big industry. But if the smaller scale farmers that fought for and developed and created this movement don't remain a part of it, it really will lose its heart and soul. And there are a tremendous number of beginning farmers and young farmers who are growing using organic methods, but who may not see the value or the need in getting certified. And, you know, for me, I feel really passionately about encouraging them to get counted and be a part of the movement, um, not just sort of philosophically, but practically as well. Um, during some of the recent National Organic Standards Board conversations, I really felt like there was this perception maybe that you know, organic has grown so much that it's, it's all big farms. And I actually contacted the National Agricultural Statistics Service and asked them if they could kind of break down the number of farms by size. And 73% of 
of all the farms in the United States in 2016 were under 180 acres. And that includes pasture land and range land in that number too. That's a really huge portion of organic operations. Um, and I think if, if people can hear that number and feel empowered by it, and if they're not certified, think, heck, you know, if I get certified, which is, is not super difficult to do, it's, you know, a lot of records that you might already be keeping or that are really um, beneficial if you're not keeping them and don't take a super tremendous amount of time. And with the cost share program that the USDA Department of Agriculture has that allows you know, for some of those costs to be reimbursed, it's actually pretty affordable too. If we could get more farmers to get certified, those numbers would be even more staggering because I can't even fathom how many farmers are out there that um, are growing using organic methods but aren't certified. So you know, part of my desire is to see them get certified, but also once they're certified to kind of you know, get as, as much as farming time allows a little more active in kind of being aware about what's coming up before the National Organic Standards Board or, or questions about the standards themselves. Um, I think, you know, sometimes there's this perception that the standards are kind of losing some of their heart and they definitely remain strong and vibrant when farmers and consumers demand that they stay that way. So, you know, the more people are certified and the more certified farmers that are actively commenting on standards and pushing for and requesting standards that reflect their values, the more this label will continue to reflect their principles and their needs. So for a, a farmer of any age, but we're, we're talking particularly about farmers who are sort of entering their farming career, um, what would the stages be? Um, well, first, first off, you, you mentioned there's a cost sharing. How, yes. how does it, to what extent does that, does that help? Yeah, so the cost share will reimburse up to 75% of the cost of certification fees, um, up to $750. So, and the certification is based on an acreage, or how, how, do, how does that figure, or is it a flat fee? Yeah, that's a great question. All certifiers um, charge different fees based on kind of, you know, whatever business model it is that they're working from. For example, in Oklahoma, it's my State Department of Agriculture that does the certification. So I'm very lucky because they have taken on that role and, you know, kind of, they definitely subsidize some of the cost. So it's extremely affordable for me. It's, you know, like once the cost share is factored and it's like $50 a year for me wow. to be certified. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, and there, there are several other places where that uh, plays out as well, where the state departments of agriculture are doing it. Um, in places where you don't have that option, there are various different choices in terms of either for-profit or non-profit certification entities. Um, and they run the gamut from being really large to really small to being regionally focused or nationally or internationally focused. So um, within, the, within the certification for the standard, there is no standard certification? Well, 
Yes, and that, um, yeah, this is where it kind of gets into the weeds, but there are, you know, there's a law that was passed in 1990, and from that, there are regulations that um, are the, like, the federal rules and regulations for organic certification. Then there's guidance that the USDA puts out to help, you know, with gray areas where people might have different interpretations of what something means. So, in an ideal world, you know, all certifiers are applying, you know, that same, those same standards and understanding of what those standards mean. Um, in the case of hydroponics, which was uh, just before the board, you know, that was an instance where different certifiers and the USDA had different interpretations of whether or not that could fit within the standards, whether the standards allowed for that. Um, and that's why it's been so controversial. Yeah. Another controversial okay. area has been animal welfare. You know, in that case, the National Organic Standards Board and the USDA, the National Organic Program, worked long and hard on creating a set of standards that went um, into what's called like the rulemaking phase, which allowed for public comment and was all set to go in effect, but it's been delayed many times now um, as we've had a change in administration. So, you know, that was a case where um, the community had really come together in agreement on improving animal welfare standards in organic label, which consumers expect and other farmers expect. But um, unfortunately, kind of the political process has delayed that, that effort. With hydroponics, you know, this is, it's still very much um, an issue of debate. But Back to a small farmer, if they were, you know, a beginning farmer wanting to get certified, um, you know, aside from a couple of areas of great controversy, there's actually more agreement than there is disagreement. Um, so, so, so if I was a, if I was a, a farmer looking to get certified in whatever state, yep. um, my next step would then be to do a search and find out who was accredited Yes. to assist me in the certification process, contact them directly. Yes. And I would, Maybe. I think the first step is to talk to another certified organic farmer mm -hmm. in your area or a couple. That, that makes say, sense. Yeah. Who's your certifier and what do they charge you? And, you know, you shop around, find, yeah. find out who will give you a, you know, who's, who can do it more affordably. And that might depend on, you know, how many inspectors they have in your region or, you know, various different aspects. So find somebody that you can afford, find somebody that is in your area, and then work with them to say, okay, you know, here's my farm. Here's what I do. Here's how long I've been farming here. What are my next steps to getting certified? And, you know, most certifiers will do an amazing job of kind of helping you walk through that, that plan. There's an organic system plan that kind of guides all of your decisions and is part of your application to becoming certified and you know while they can't fill it out for you they will definitely can help answer all of your questions and kind of guide you through that process so a lot of beginning farmers are lucky and that we um, have had access to rented land in our beginning years as my partner Mike and I did as well and sometimes that land has been fallow or dormant for a number of years and you know no synthetic 
or prohibited substances have been applied on it in the last three years. And you can actually get it certified immediately if you can you know, get an affidavit testifying to the fact that nothing prohibited has been applied. And then you can get certified immediately. Um, in some cases, you might, you might have to wait that three-year period. But um, the beauty of, when, of getting certified once you do is that it is so easy to communicate to your customers in two words, certified organic, you know, what you do. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't give them the full picture that we were talking about earlier, you know, all of the broader biodiversity and ecosystem services that you're doing, but it's, it's a very fast and understood means of sharing your practices. Sure, and you could you could then piggyback onto that with a regenerative certification when you're exactly. ready. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I've looked at the regenerative standards, and um, I think they might be just about to shut down if they haven't already their public comment period because they were also soliciting comments from yeah. farmers and others. And you know, I think assuming that that goes forward, it's even that much more reason for either smaller scale or beginning farmers to get certified because that will be the foundation of the regenerative label. And then, you know, regenerative will then communicate all of the other things that you're doing kind of on top of organic certification. And it's a moving process. So when organic certification comes around again in 10 years or so, you know, to kind of check progress and see where it wants to be. It'll have had that amount of time to be influenced by what's going on in regenerative. Yes, definitely. We we can not just hope, but I think we can act, you know, towards continuing to, to raise the bar on that. Definitely. I mean, I think we have a conundrum right now within the certified organic community. You know, I, um, I just recently found out by going to the grocery store in the town near me that um, there's a certified organic Doritos. <laughs> you know, it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but, you know, it's a little bit odd for a farmer like me to be sharing the label with organic Doritos. And, you know, it's, it, it, we've got the situation where we've got kind of two different tracks under the same label. And I think that's where, yes. It speaks to the whole process of dilution of meaning. Right? Yes. (laughs) I can remember, now when was it? Back in the 80s maybe it was with this this, um, movement um, on a legislative level started permitting pretty much anything to label itself as natural. Mm-hmm. And previous to that, natural was, yeah, I don't know if it meant a huge amount specifically, but people were using that as a guide much as they may now use organic. Yes. And within a few months, it became absolutely meaningless. Right. Right. So we well, have to be vigilant. We do. And I think, you know, that's part of our conundrum too. We, you know, the value in organic certification is that it does have these known standards um, that should be followed by everyone. And organic can't just mean whatever anybody wants it to mean, um, which really was the case and to some extent before the national program 
came into effect because what certified organic meant by the Oklahoma Department of Agriculture was not necessarily the same thing as meant by, you know, another entity. So, you know, one thing that certification has done is it's at least brought us a lot closer together in terms of what certified organic means. But it is also coming to this to this point that as the movement expands and as the label encompasses a much broader range of systems, you know, you've got sort of the, the people that founded the movement and the smaller scale or more family scale farmers, you know, operating kind of with one philosophical bent. And then you've got larger scale corporations who, who may share some of those philosophical beliefs, but, um, you know, I don't necessarily share the same reasons that brought me into organic farming and that keep me here. You know, it's not a profit motive for me and many of the farmers like me, um, whereas it is a profit motive for many of those corporations. Which and, is kind of an interesting turn of events, given that organic was for so long considered a hippie fringe. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's, I mean, I, I hate to use this term like victim of our own success because I don't, I don't want to characterize it that way. But it, when something becomes successful, you know, it, it generates a lot of interest and yeah. people start joining the movement who may not share those, those values that created it in the first place. So now we're at this, we're at this interesting like divide or bridge or decision-making place where we have to determine, you know, how many of those original values that created this thing in the first place still need to be a part of the label that exists today. I mean, for someone like me, I would say all of it and more, you know, we should be making these standards, you know, increasingly stronger. That's, yeah. that would be my goal as a farmer. Um, and the more young farmers and small farmers that get certified and say the same thing, the more powerful that message. So let's talk about that for just a, a very brief moment. And then I have one more question before we go. Um, you had mentioned that there's not only a need, but an opportunity for more people to get involved in voicing um, their concerns and their, their ideas to the National Organic Standards Board. Do you need to be a certified farmer in the system to be able to do that? Or can anybody, consumer or producer, send in an opinion? Absolutely. Anybody can. Um, and I'll admit, before I was on the National Organic Standards Board, I think I had probably commented on something once, and that was the animal welfare standards, because I care really passionately about that. But you know, I was busy farming and I just sort of assumed that people were, you know, kind of sharing the same values that I had and that the standards were being reviewed and upheld in the same sort of philosophical bent that I have. And I think for the most part, that's the case. But when it's not the case and when there's controversy, it's all that more important that everybody share their point of view. So it's a little bit archaic to kind of try to think about you know, navigating the comment process, but it's actually not as scary as it sounds. <laughs> There's just where, a website. Where, would you go? where do you yep. go to do that? <laughs> it's called regulations.gov. And you would type in National Organic Standards Board. 
Um, and you can go to the National Organic Programs website to find out, you know, what the upcoming meetings are and what will be on the agenda and what proposals or um, materials will be discussed. And then use that to go into regulations.gov to comment on the items at whatever upcoming meeting, you know, is next. So this, for people who are not already online activists, for instance, <laughs> this, this, this may sound a little bit daunting, but I promise you, exercise your right to have a voice once or twice and it becomes addictive. Um, and it also, <laughs> you know, you can, all, you can almost, um, you know, automize this. It's, you have, you save your, save your links, you just click in there and, um, and off you go. And you, you could just make that something you periodically check in on, on a, some kind of a schedule that makes sense to you. If there's anything we should have learned in the last 11 months in the United States, it's that we cannot take for granted any kind of systemic security in standards. Mm -hmm. So this, you know, this is my personal conviction is that if we want something, we need to speak out and make sure we get to keep it. I could not agree more. And I think you're right. You know, if you're not kind of in the thick of all of this stuff, it can seem either overwhelming or not totally relevant, but, but it is relevant and it's not that overwhelming. And in fact, What's overwhelming is the aftermath of what happens when people aren't involved, as you say. And it's, it's a democratic process. And it's important to exercise those democratic rights that we have. It can be easy to kind of take that for granted and to be overwhelmed by all the choices and opportunities to exercise your democratic rights that exist. But for the things that we care passionately about, it's all the more important, as you say, that we share our voice and make our opinions known. Yeah. Well, on that note, I want to ask you my last question for today. Um, looking ahead 10 or 20 years, if things go in the direction you'd really like them to go with your own work and, and your, your extension work and your farm, your physical farm, how, would, how are you envisioning the world for your little girl to grow into? That's a great question. <laughs> That's a great question. I would love to see the number of first generation farmers increasing. I'd love to see more small farms like mine. I'd love to see more people growing food in their backyards if they want to. And if they don't, more people seeking out those direct relationships with the people who are growing it. I'd love to see the farmer's market where we sell twice as big with twice as many customers. I'd love to see more people getting certified and advocating for standards that they believe in and a label that fully reflects those values because people have spoken and have been heard. I'd love to see more farmers visiting farmers and having that opportunity to share their values and share their experiences and learn from one another and build upon this established knowledge of a regenerative system of farming, one that truly does work as much as possible in concert with nature 
and spreading those values on a global level. And I don't think that that's all impossible. I really see that that movement has already started. The train is out, like we are on that momentum. That path has already been paved and we're heading down it. And it's extremely exciting and hopeful. And it's what gives me promise in the moments of uncertainty. Beautiful vision. I think we'll leave it there. Um, thank you so much, Emily Oakley from Three Spring Farms for spending your time with us today. If you'd like to know more about uh, the farm itself or even to contact Emily, um, go to the website. It's www.threespringsfarm.com. And that's T-H-R-E-E-S-P-R-I-N-G-S-F-A-R-M, Three Springs Farm, all spelled out. www.threespringsfarm.com and you will find a wealth of information there to provoke your curiosity and answer some of your questions and I hope maybe cause you to ask even more. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www r-a-s-a dot a-g if you have any ideas you'd like to suggest such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover hit me up with your ideas on twitter at greenheart that's g-r-e-e-n underscore h-e-a-r-t greenheart we'll see you next week